Hey, BTB buddies, I've got Ryan Singer on the show today. Ryan is a unique comedian who's released four comedy albums, and his special The Supernatural was released on YouTube this year. Ryan has a sincerity and a positive message in his humor that will make you feel like you laugh through a successful therapy session. His popular podcast, Me and the Paranormal You, features interviews with paranormal investigators, experiencers, and members of secret societies. This episode is a personal favorite of mine. I really hope you like it. It's a good one. If you've got a great idea for a podcast and don't know where to start or have a current podcast that isn't meeting your goals, I am starting a podcast consulting service called Your Pod Guy on January 9th of 2023. I've been producing personal and business podcasts since 2016, and boy, have I made a lot of mistakes along the way. I learned from them, and I'm using my knowledge to help you create a podcast that fulfills your mission. If you'd like to connect with me pre-launch, shoot me an email to scott at yourpodguy.com, and let's talk. Scott, how are you? I'm really, really stoked to talk to you. I, I hope you're doing well. Um, I just wanted to say that I, I've watched your special through twice now. And the amount of sincerity that is that coming out of you in that special really, you know, I, I know you see that when you're live sometimes, but it comes through the screen and I was moved by what you said. Oh, wow. That's, I mean, I don't know if you get a better compliment than that. So thank you. Yeah. And I'm, I'm like, probably a direct opposite of you i'm like a like i'm I'm like a scully that's atheist instead of catholic and uh um i really i I don't know i just dug in and you know at at the end where you're telling everybody that you love them and stuff like that i it kind of choked me up a little bit and oh wow that's that's great yeah and so in contrast i listened to your 2009 album uh (laughs) the uh how, how to get high without drugs and and it's it's amazing that you've you've transformed quite a bit in in those years in about 13 years i mean there was i mean there was a little bit of um it was funny don't get me wrong i love the album it, it it was fantastic but you know there was some anger there there was uh you know there was a there there was a little bit of an edge to you that I felt like in the recording of that album, you could just pop off and punch somebody at any time. Um, whereas this one, you seem like you're totally at peace. And, uh, the, the new one, the supernatural seems like you're totally at peace with the world and just hit it out of the park. Well, I appreciate you saying that. I mean, it's interesting. I've, I haven't thought about the juxtaposition of the two until you brought it up. And my first album, How to Get High Without Drugs, for sure was, I mean, I think a lot of it was I was pretty amped up. Um, and there was one show. Uh, we just did one show. That, that's the whole, that's just, there's no editing really on that album. Mm-hmm. It's just in the same way with the supernatural. I mean, the supernatural was edited down, but I only, I only performed one show. Mm. And so in, in that way, they're, they're the same in every other album I've had in the middle, my second, third and fourth albums, those were like a weekend of shows that were compiled together for one album to make it sound like one show. Right. Mm. But I love the idea of having 
the experience of listening to an album or watching a special and being like, this is what it's like to see this person perform on any given night, right? Mm. Potentially. And hopefully it's a good night, right? But, yeah. Um, or you wouldn't release it. But the, and I was, you know, I think I had, uh, at least I had a, a couple chips on my shoulder and on that first album um, where I felt like, you know, I really have to prove myself. Um, and because I had gone, I don't know, it took me about five years of doing open mic before I could even get like MC work uh-huh. because I was kind of unbridled and a little bit out of, you know, I'm an artist. Don't tell me what to say or do. And I won't, I won't censor myself, <laughs> blah, 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 blah. Right. And then I was like, and then one day I realized I was like, you know, maybe if I do, I want to do this for a living. I got to learn how you do it for a living. What's the craft of stand up, Right. Uh, uh-huh. As opposed to just going up on stage and spewing, you know, I did have a lot of anger towards God and things like that uh, from, you know, my upbringing and things that do filter, did filter throughout uh, my act. Um, I think that's part of the anger you, you might be talking about, whether or not it's mm-hmm. a religious joke or not. There was still this edge to me and um, and also kind of reacting against maybe all the people who looked like me and sounded like me, but thought totally different than me. Yeah. I grew up. Yeah. Yeah. That, and, that really makes yeah. sense. Uh, it's just a, um, I always, I always love it when you've documented a comedian has documented, you know, their years in comedy with an, with an album and, you know, I'll, I'll, uh, compare it to like Carlin. So you, you go through Carlin's albums and, you know, he changed so much from hippy dippy weatherman to, you know, the, the Carlin that we all, knew and loved uh in in the uh two thousands and nineties and the two thousands where he's ranting against uh everything and it's just it's amazing to see that progression and and really growth because I think that, you know, after you've been doing it for a certain amount of time, you almost have to get into your real voice or you would just go nuts on stage. And I, it just feels to me like you found it. Does it feel like that to you? Yeah, I definitely feel, I mean, at the very least, I would say I'm much, much closer um, to, to having it. And I think after 20 years in stand-up comedy, it's weird because it was with this special and talking with people about this recently. I don't know if it's just because of the 20-year mark in my mind, but I, I think I've finally come to a place where I'm comfortable telling people like, oh, yeah, my, my comedy's good. Mm-hmm. And, you know, without feeling like I'm being braggadocious. Yeah. Or conceited or arrogant. And it's 20 years of really hard work that have gone into, you know, being the performer that I am now. And I still have moments of, you know, insecurity and all that kind of stuff for sure. But I do feel like I am so much more closer to being the person I am in my mind when I think about how do I want to be funny and how, or how do I translate like my idea of what humor and comedy is to people that I don't know or to people I do know. And I feel like my stage act is much closer to who I am hanging out with my friends now. And, and, you know, who, you know, at this point after 20 years in comedy are pretty much all comedians, but the, um, you know, it's like the curse and a blessing, you know, <laughs> it's like you, you're friends with the funniest people in the world. And then it's, you know, and then sometimes you're, you're not hanging out with your comedian friends and you're just like, Oh, what? 
I didn't laugh as much as I usually do on a normal. And it's like, oh, that's right, because pr- professionally these people are doing. But anyway, um, <laughs> it's uh, I do I do feel like I'm getting I'm grooving into that and feeling comfortable being who I am, and uh, and and that always you know changes you know depending on you know because I do believe in growth and I do believe that if we're not learning or, you know, slightly evolving, you know, we're, you know, growing stagnant. And mm-hmm. I'm really glad that my comedy is much different than it was from that first album. And, you know, I think my second album is also different and my third album is different. And then, you know, my fourth album and then this special um, becomes, you know, even more different than everything that before it. So, mm-hmm. um yeah, it's really fun to think about that. But I mean, I don't spend a lot of time thinking about myself and my own evolution about, uh, you know, in regards to stand up. But, you know, it is fun to peer in every once in a while, I suppose. Mm-hmm. Another thing I noticed. So on the first album, it was there was a pretty clear delineation between jokes. It was it was, you know. The jokes here. Here's the next one. You set it up well. All the transitions were great. In the special, it felt like, and, and I say this to, I've said this to other comedians, it felt like, first off, it was the first time you ever said it, and second, it felt like there's no way you could have ever written any of this down because it just felt like a stream of consciousness, and yet it all tied together. You got the callbacks. You got, I mean, you've got everything that should be in a comedy act, but it's disguised as, I don't know, like a TED talk or something like that. And, and, uh, really it, it that, that's what really drew me in. Cause I, I didn't feel like I was watching a comedy show so much. Yeah. You're, you're, you're definitely right about, um, the, I guess, segmentation of, of the set, uh, being able to clearly define like, like if I had a set list, like, you know, and I think what's interesting to me about that is when I was very first doing stand up, uh, you know, those five years where I wasn't getting any work, I was, I was critiqued by the comedy club owner, Lisa Grigsby here in Dayton, Ohio, who's largely responsible for helping me you know, get a grip on things and, you know, become a comedian. She told me she, uh, she's, she said she wanted to see me do the same set 10 times in a row. at like guest spots and open mic nights before she would give me an MC week. And I was like, okay, fine, I'll do that. And so I think it was the fourth or fifth time I had done that set. I walk into the back of the room after I get off stage and I'm like, okay, there's four or five. And she goes, she goes, are you sure about that? Because it looks like it looks like you're saying that for the very first time. Uh, looks like you just made that up. Uh, and I was like, and I pull out my set list. and I was like, look, this is the set list. That's everything I said. And she goes, OK, we'll be here uh, Friday night. You're hosting or whatever. Right. Uh, uh-huh. And it was when she realized, like, OK, he did show some discipline. He is committed to actually developing some craft uh-huh. and. But those first five years, I was kind of a maniac and that I didn't, you couldn't really tell like the beginning and end of a joke or anything. I mean, I didn't have the tools, the the toolbox yet for writing jokes until I really made myself buckle down and work on the craft. Mm -hmm. um, My style now mirrors when I first started in that way, if that makes sense. I was, 
I had the style, but not the voice of who I really wanted to be when I first started. Mm-hmm. Um, if, and I didn't have the skill and the ability to pull it off at all. And, um, and so all those years in between have been the development of writing jokes, learning how to figure out the timing, uh, figuring out what works within me and what people perceive when they see me. What, what, you know, what kind of comedy can I do? Um, and I don't like to put rules on anything because I don't, I truly don't think there are any rules in stand up. And that's one of the beautiful things. Mm-hmm. Now, the audiences and the world will let you know if they think you are breaking rules, I suppose, and or doing things in a way that they're not really interested in. And, mm-hmm. you know, we could kind of consider those to be loose rules, I suppose if we wanted to, but when it comes to the art form of stand-up comedy, I really don't believe that there are any rules and you can look at all the different, you can look at the disparate styles between so many different performers nowadays and you can realize, Oh yeah, this is, this is because of that freedom of, of, of art and lack of rules. Um, you know, comedy is comedy at the end of the day. Uh, is it funny? And if it's funny, then it's comedy. Mm-hmm. I read one write up about you that I thought was accurate that you, your comedy plays to the back of the room, but it uh, resonates with the audience as well. Do you, I know I get a kick out of making other comics laugh because it's hard. You know, even, even if they think it's funny, they're like, yeah, that was good if you can actually make them laugh, it is really, it, it's almost like winning a gold medal or something like that. How does that, how does that feel for you? Are you, are you kind of trying to get your peers to uh, come along? Because I mean, you are unique. I think that's, um, it would be a lie if I said I didn't. Uh. You know? I mean, I've always really enjoyed the back of the room cackling. Um, and not when I'm bombing, you know, which yeah. is the difference, you know, like yeah. actually yeah. there, if you can make the back of the room laugh because of the joke and not because of the lack of response from the audience, I mean, that's really, that is really a thrill for a comedian. And, you know, because I think for me, I, I often for years and I, I still do probably had a definition of success that I, I kind of came up with that I like to think about, like. Success is when your, you know, your heroes become your peers, become your friends. Mm-hmm. Right? And so, and comedians become friends with each other when, when they think each other are funny. Right? Yeah. right. And I mean, there's also other reasons, but, but mostly that's the number one thing that makes comics be buds is that they think each other are funny. And I, I do love that. But at the end of the day, the job, quote unquote, job that we're doing is to make audience the audience laugh. Uh-huh. And there have been times in my career where I've lost sight of that and it's and I've struggled because of it. Um and there's you know you know making your friends laugh in the back of the room will not pay your rent. Right. <laughs> usually. <laughs> and so it, there is you know there is something about making strangers laugh. And whether it's about something that they might not have thought about before or 
something that they even disagree with to a certain degree. Uh-huh. Um, there's something about bringing joy into someone's life through laughter that for me is at the heart of the whole thing. Right. And making your friends laugh in the back of the room is just kind of like, it's really that icing on the cake. Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. That's, that, that's, that's a very good way of framing it. So I'm going to, I'm going to go back to the special because it was, there, there, there were so many words said and there were, there, <laughs> there were so many act outs and, you know, compressed, compressed into that hour. Um, so how do you approach that? I mean, do you have, have, have you written this stuff down? Like you want to say it or have you just done it enough times that you get it to where you think, think that this is, this is the way I want to present this particular idea, this particular joke, or, I mean, how, how do you get ready? How do you write? You know, for some of these jokes, I don't remember. Um, I, and I don't know if that makes sense or not, or, but here's how I have been writing ever since the beginning. I have legal pads and I freestyle and I hope by going back through those legal pads later, which I don't usually allow myself to go back and look through a legal pad until I've finished it. Um, you know, it's, it's shameful for me to say right now, I've been so preoccupied with like other projects and things like that. I've got, I don't even know how many legal pads I've got that I still haven't had a chance to go through, but there's more than a few. Uh And I'll go back through those legal pads and I'll try to find the funny stuff. And then I will write down in a different notebook, like a composition notebook, a sentence or two that has that idea. Or every once in a while I get lucky and, um, you know, I, I've got a fully formed joke when I'm writing it. Um, that doesn't happen all that often. Um, but, and then I take it to the stage and usually I have the beginning, middle and end of it figured out. Mm -hmm. And then the energy of the audience and performing it live will dictate how that kind of comes into being right um and there's sometimes there are jokes that have just sprung to life unexpectedly in the moment like i have a joke called the top six number one inventions of all time and it's on my third album i think and it's like a 10 minute it's like a closing it's usually it's what i was closing with for a couple years and it's a joke i really love and that bit came into uh existence at a you know, not the best, but not the worst L.A. restaurant comedy show in the world, uh-huh. right, that used to exist back in the day because there was a fireplace behind me on stage. And then I just, the audience was kind of like, I don't know, blah, blah, blah. You know, they weren't great. And then I look behind me and I'm like, fire, look at that, fire. That's got to be one of the top six number one inventions of all time. And I just thought that was a funny phrase, one of the top six number one inventions. Mm-hmm. And so then I started just riffing and then I had to come up with five other inventions on in the moment. Right. Uh And then over time that bit became what it was. Um, and there wasn't any writing necessarily. I mean, maybe after the fact I would write down, Oh, this would be a good invention. And I'd write something down in a notebook and try to insert that into the bit. So it's mostly freestyle writing. 
Uh, I'll take the heart of something I think was a funny idea and I'll take that to the stage and I'll either put it in the middle of like a headlining set um, or work it out on an open mic night. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's usually how, and then I just start the work from there and then I just keep refining it. And if it doesn't work and if I really believe in it, I tweak it and throw it out there again. And, you know, after, I don't know how many times a joke has to fail before I'm just like, okay, this one, this joke is not for me. Mm. Maybe somebody else can do this one, you know? How do you decide? So in, in comedy, we all talk about ABC jokes. How, how do you decide that this, you've got jokes that do okay. And then you, you've got the ones that kill. How do you decide to put it together in a 60 minute set, how do you decide what, what joke lives and what joke dies? Even, even if it's good, it, it may, it may be an A joke, but it doesn't fit in the set. How do you put all that together? I, I think that's, um, depending on, I mean, are we talking, I mean, we could, uh, there's a couple different ways we could, we could look at it. Like, are we talking about it, like putting something down on a recording or actually just doing a live show? Um, cause I think the rules change a little bit. Yeah. I um, think, I think put it in a recording because putting it in a recording. I mean, there has to be some cohesion in order for, for that to come across. Yeah. Without getting too heady about it. I try to ask myself, what's the story I want to tell and where do I want to take these people? You know, what journey do I want to be the tour guide for on this album? Mm. Right. Because one of my favorite things about Steve Martin albums and also George Carlin albums and Richard Pryor albums and, you know, Maria Bamford albums is I'll put on an album and I'll be like, I'm listening to a comedy album. And then within about five minutes of the right album of the right comedian for me, I totally forget that I'm listening to a comedy album. Now I'm having... I'm having an experience, right? Mm. And and then it's not until the end of the album that I realize, oh my god, I just listened to a whole album. Like, oh wow, I was just I was transported into a world that was built by the performer, mm-hmm. and I love that. So for me, going into any recording is that's probably paramount for me. That's probably number one. I want to be a world builder. Mm. And then it becomes, well, I can build whatever world I want. What is the world I really want to build? And then the pieces kind of fall into place from there. Excellent. So I think, I think you agree that you're unusual as far as a comedian goes. Say you're headlining Fort Wayne, Indiana. What, what types of responses do you get in different areas of the country? You know, when I was younger, it was a lot more varied. Mm-hmm. Um, there were, there was a, there was an, I'd like to think it was an interesting period in my career there about 10 years ago where I was headlining some rooms and I was still featuring some rooms. I was featuring like the loony bins. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I'd feature for comedians like, you know, you know, Mudflap, 
Steve McGrew, I, you know, or, uh, cowboy Bill Martin, um, you know, people who had very like blue collar, um, audiences compared to what I, maybe my point of view as like what Uh people would now consider to be pretty snowflakey liberal or I guess whatever, uh, which I've never, I don't really consider myself anything other than just myself, but, um, because there was a period in time where I was only wearing women's jeans because they were so comfortable. And I remember I would open my sets at all the loony bins on purpose talking about my Gloria Vanderbilt jeans uh-huh. and how comfortable <laughs> they were because they were stretchy. Yeah. <laughs> and it was like in this weird period of my career where I had figured out how to let people who were different than me know that it's okay to laugh what I'm talking about. Cause I'm not here to like call you an idiot. I'm not here to make you feel stupid. I'm just here to share my point of view. Right. Uh-huh. And I also had the kind of energy about me to where, you know, my hecklers slowly, but surely started falling off to the side. Like maybe it's cause I was high energy and I learned a very valuable lesson from Robert Hawkins. Who's one of the most brilliant guys when it comes to this, uh, such a funny guy. But it's like when you have a like a drunk like chill Friday crowd, you open your mouth and you don't stop talking until they've stopped talking. Mm-hmm. Uh, you take the mic, you control it. You are a wall of sound, Beach Boys style. The audience has no choice but to succumb to you and your comedy and sit back and listen now. Mm-hmm. Right? And then you can take a breath. But I mean, sometimes people are just so drunk that that doesn't even matter. But that's here that's neither here nor there but like it was um you know starting out i was i became very comfortable performing to silence in mm. dayton ohio uh uh that's for sure which was a valuable thing to let to a lesson to learn i think um especially for you know some of the comedy i wanted to do because i mean i do break some of the rules of comedy i suppose and that I have certain bits like there's a bit about Gargamel in his origin story that I, I have on like a, a couple albums ago. And it is it's a long bit. Uh-huh. I listen to that one. That, that's really good. Oh, thanks. And, <laughs> you know, it, and it's not. And I allowed myself to not like have to have punchlines like every 10, 15 seconds in this really long story. Right. right? And. And the payoff of that story isn't so much a gut buster as much as it is kind of a thoughtful conclusion. And what I like to think is a satisfying conclusion to that story as well. Uh But, you know, and so like working on that bit in the middle of nowhere for people who have no idea who I am, it really kind of refined my skills and trying to make sure I capture an audience's attention somehow Mm -hmm. and then hold it. Yeah. And then win credibility or, you know, favor at the beginning to be able to get away with, you know, quote unquote murder in the middle and at the end. Uh-huh. That Gargamel one, especially, I like how you take a two dimensional villain and turn them into a human. And, and, and the fact that he's, he's kind of, uh, going back and forth on, on what he should do. And then at at the, at the end, uh, 
well, maybe I went too far. And yeah, yeah, he actually, just, he, he, there was growth. There was like growth yeah, in Gargamel. Yeah. I, I just, I, I thought that was great. And I, I feel like I, I, the only person I can really compare you to would be, uh, Stuart Huff. I don't know if you've ever, if you've ever worked with oh, him. Yeah. I love Stuart. But the fact he's, he's like you, there's a sincerity there that you, even though your point of view is coming across clearly, even if they don't have your point of view, you're making fun of it a little bit, your own point of view, and you're softening, softening it to a point where they can stay on board and keep leaning in. And that, that's really artful to be able to do that. Well, I think the most important thing about what we believe in is to maintain a sense of humor about it. And you can see when that breaks down around the world around us. Because, mm. um, you know, when you don't have a sense of humor about the thing you believe in, now you're just a jerk mm. telling people what they should believe. Right. And so that, and, and, and that's not to say I haven't lost my sense of humor at times and gotten angry or upset about things socially or politically, et cetera, because I do, I get very... I get very charged up about things, but one of the rules I try to live by as well is, especially when it comes to my jokes is the more serious the joke is, the more ridiculous it has to be. Mm -hmm. So the more serious the topic, the more insane, <laughs> you know, where this joke goes Yeah. to, to like balance the scale of it. Right. And I think if I can do that successfully, I can get anybody to listen to it, regardless of what they believe and which side of the joke they're on. Yeah, I, I, I agree. I mean, it seems like the, I, 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 you know, I can see people, you know, really, really cutthroat right wing people maybe getting a little bit ticked off, but man, you, you just, you, you don't come at them like, you're wrong. I'm right. You're coming at him like, yeah, this, this is what I went through in my life. And, uh, I, it, it really, it really comes through. Well, I'm glad to hear that because I mean, I think comedy builds bridges and you know, it's at the end of the day, yeah, there's, it's, we're making jokes and people are laughing and, you know, but to be able to build bridges somehow, um, I, you know, we hear about how divisive the world is and, and I'm not here to say that it's not, but what I am here to remind people, and I love doing this when I'm performing all around the country is it doesn't matter where you are in the country. And as comedians, we know this, there's certain fundamental things that everybody, regardless of who they are, what they look like, what they believe in, are going to find funny and mm -hmm. they're going to laugh. Yeah. And, and comedy clubs are really great places usually where people come together and people of all different walks of life come together and they realize like, oh yeah, we're all, we're all very much the same. Mm -hmm. uh, not in a like generic way, mm -hmm. but in a, in a very like in a uniting way, which is, which is exciting and which is fun as a comedian to be able to 
you know, help people realize that even when you're not even, you don't have to say it to them. They just can just subconsciously, they can just understand that. Mm-hmm. Um, and to me, that's a beautiful thing. And, you know, there's this scientist, uh, Kevin Kelly, who did a great Ted talk on like the evolution of technology and how it's, how technology evolves like everything else in the world does human beings, technology, anything evolves towards specialization. And we can see that in comedy. Like it used to be stand-up comedy. Now there, then there was political comedy. Then there was blue comedy. There's blue collar comedy. There's all the alt comedy. You know, it's like all these specialized versions. Mm-hmm. And, but what we, what we need to keep in mind is I think that at the end of the day, it's all comedy regardless of the adjective in front of it. And the goal is to, you know, make people laugh. And I think, I think sometimes when we get in trouble as comedians, it's because we put comedy second and we're here to offend, but it's also maybe a little bit funny Mm -hmm. or we're here to be political, but it's also maybe kind of humorous. And I think when the comedy part comes second in the adjective, edgy, political, blue, whatever else comes first in the actual practice of performance that's when that's when we start to get into you know failure territory mm-hmm. potentially where where it's not like why isn't this working like it should like i think it should be so in, in watching you i don't see you really emulating any comedian that i know so what comedians helped you find your style you know, either by was, watching them or working yeah. with them yeah i think you know the, the the you know the palette is so wide and varied i i i i loved when i was a kid i was like i'm gonna grow up and be a comedian and i'm gonna be a combination of richard lewis and robin williams that was like hmm. that's like i want to be a neurotic improvisational maniac yeah right I want to be like climbing up a pillar in a theater and wondering and then talking about like, my mother will not approve of this. <laughs> you know, uh, <laughs> my mother says I shouldn't be climbing things. Um, but uh, so I love those two. Um, I also loved, you know, Steve Martin, uh, Carlin. I mean, I loved I, I loved the sass and like the attitude of Joan Rivers. I um, I loved the the remarkable range of character of John Leguizamo mm-hmm. and you know, Leguizamo probably falls more into like, you know, one person show territory for most people. Mm-hmm. Um, but John Leguizamo was a huge influence on me. I think comedically uh, Adam Sandler, his albums had a huge impact on just like really reinforcing in me, like non sequitur silliness mm-hmm. i think to a certain degree of characters and things like sometimes the things that come out of nowhere are the funniest and they're just ridiculous and you know don't you know keep it simple stupid sometimes to a certain degree but that's not to say that everything that what he does is simple mm-hmm. uh because but I, he was a huge impact on me and then coming up the you know the crew that i came up with also you know, influenced me a lot. Like uh, I came up with, for the most part, like guys like Jeff Tate and Dave Waite, who, you know, Dave Waite's much more of a like, you know, like, boom, I got jokes, baby. Boom, boom, Mm -hmm. boom, 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 boom. 
and and Tate is just so good at like you know being in the moment and like no matter what happens if somebody in the audience thinks they're going to do something to Jeff Tate's set they've got they've got another thing coming <laughs> because he will utterly destroy them and you know but just cuz he but without being like a jerk about it and but also you know really good at storytelling um one of my favorite comedians who I don't get to see very often um, is Sean Patton. Oh yeah. Sean Patton to me is, Oh man. I mean like he, I love, I, I would love nothing more than being able to see Sean Patton all the time. Yeah. Um, you know, we're buddies, uh, you know, we're not like, you know, thick as thieves or anything, but, uh, Sean Patton, you know, he's an inspiring guy watching mm. him do stand up, And I mean, cause he, literally is unbridled comedy that is like concentrated into a vial uh-huh. um and it's just drip drip funny funny i mean concentrate comedy and uh-huh. um you know there's i've had other great influences like i got to be on the road opening for mark Marin for about four years mm-hmm. for the better part of three or four years and watching him just control a theater was uh, was mind-boggling mm-hmm. and I do like to think you can learn something from anyone that goes on stage, even if it's their very first time. Mm-hmm. And um, so I try to keep that in mind um, whenever I'm at a show. But, uh, you know, there's there's so many that, like, when it comes to, like, I do feel like I've, I've, I have kind of come into my own thing especially the last, you know, four or five years. And, um, and I'm glad to say that I still love all of these other comedians and who I admire and, you know, truly want to be like in the way of how funny they are. Mm -hmm. Um, and you know, as long as I can do it as Ryan Singer. Yeah. I get that. How do you feel the, comedy has changed either good or bad in the 20 years that you've done it oh well um you know i make purposeful decisions in my life at least usually i try to to always stay on the brighter side of things and stay away from the negative mm-hmm. um so i you know i won't get into like the negative parts of, of where comedy goes maybe um I kind of touched on it earlier a little bit, kind of alluded to it. I, I, when we put comedy second behind something else, mm-hmm. that's when I'm just kind of, it's a little exhausting yeah. for me. And it's like, are we just, are you coming out on the stage to try to shock people or are we actually going to try to do laughs here? Mm-hmm. Um, some people love that and that's, 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 that's fine. I, I, I suppose, but um, it's just not my cup of tea. Um, so I don't seek that out and watch it or listen to it. But um, the best part about comedy, I think, especially in the last 10 years, is the explosion of stand-up that, for me, is directly related to the inclusion of diverse voices in stand-up, which has been helped along a lot by podcasts and, you know, other things. Uh, I suppose social media nowadays. Um, but there's no there's no coincidence that stand up comedy was has never been popular or more popular than it has been 
when the most amount of diverse voices are getting the opportunity to have platforms to be seen. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me is just, it's like dummy math. It's mm-hmm. like one plus one equals two. This is very obvious. So to me, that is the most beautiful thing about stand up in the last 10 years mm-hmm. um, is this journey that it has been on and becoming more well-rounded, uh, more diverse and just bigger better and i think without without that it would have it would have gone the way of you know sword swallowing yeah <laughs> you might be able to find it if you're really looking for it like a ren fair or something yeah <laughs> uh, you got to cosplay it <laughs> yeah yeah <laughs> And and I I really appreciate the fact because I really see comedians and, and I understand I, I understand what you're getting at. There are some comedians that feel like it's them against the audience, and there's some comedians that feel like um, they're there for the audience, and and you're in the latter. And I I really salute you for having an act and an attitude in your act that makes people feel more positive walking out than when they came in. Yeah, that's an important part. I think, I mean, that's not to say when I was younger, I didn't, I mean, like you even talked about my first album still had the remnants of it. You know, there were times where like my whole act was just up there, me just yelling. Uh It wasn't fulfilling me. And then it was around 2008, 2009, when I started to realize, oh, I'm funnier when I'm happy. Uh-huh. And because I had bought into hook, line, and sinker, you can't be funny unless you're this dark, depressed, tortured comedian soul. Right? Uh-huh. Um, everything has to be kind of going to hell in your life, and that's when you're the funniest. Uh-huh. And, you know, I, I, I bought into all those stereotypes, uh-huh. you know, going into comedy. So it's very hard to shake free of those. Uh-huh. Uh And, but once I started to realize, oh, I am, I am funnier when I'm happy. And actually, because there's that old line, like nobody wants to hear a comedian go up on stage and talk about how great his life is or how great their life is. And I was like, well, let's see about that. Uh So when hearing that, I wasn't like, yeah, that's true. Like I was in the past when I was very young, but I was more like, okay, this is a challenge. You're challenging me. Yeah. You don't think that can be done? Well, let's. You know, if nothing else, my whole life is all about being fascinated by showing that the impossible is, in fact, possible. Uh uh And so that kind of became the undercurrent for me. Like, okay, well, let's let's show people that it can be just as funny and it can, like, leave you feeling good um, to to go this way with it. Uh And that's not to say I don't have dark moments in my set. I mean, um and that I don't like to play around with those other areas of comedy. Cause I, cause my life isn't all roses and butterflies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I do like to play around with that stuff sometimes. And, and uh, yeah. So, I mean, there's no rule that I live by. I was like, okay, well, you know, every joke I have has to, you know, can't be, have any darkness to it or, or anything like that. Mm-hmm. But, um, but overall I want the sense of the experience to be that for sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And it really comes through. What's the best piece of advice that you've got uh, in your career that you still 
hold to? Well, this one's really simple. And, you know, I've gotten, I've had the really, I've been really lucky in my career where I've gotten to work with and become friends with and know so many amazing performers. And along the way, I have received so much brilliant advice and most of it I've probably already forgotten. But I, this one is just very simple for like very young, for young comedians, because I used to do this all the time and I still see it all the time everywhere, but you usually see it when it's a younger comedian is don't ask permission to tell your jokes from the audience. Mm -hmm. And I was hosting at like a funny bone or something. And the headliner had me in the green room after the show and just, and just point blank asked me, why do you ask the, why do you ask the audience for permission to tell all your jokes? And I was like, uh, I thought he was making a joke. I was like, what? Uh, okay. That's funny. He goes, no, you know, you're asking for permission. Every time you have a joke about any subject or topic, you will always ask the audience if they are familiar with that thing first. Like, uh -huh. who? Uh, round of applause. Anybody here drive a car? Uh -huh. Round of applause happens. So I'm driving my car the other day. Blah, 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 blah. Yeah. You can relate to my car because you have a car. It's just like, no, just tell them the joke about your car. Uh -huh. You don't need them to know what you're talking about. And if it's something that's so obscure that they don't know what you're talking about, do like maybe a real quick explanation. You know, you don't have to ask them, does anybody here know about this thing? And then if nobody claps, be like, okay, well, let me tell you about this. It's just like, okay, just give a little tidbit of information about that thing. And then boom, go into the joke. Mm -hmm. It just makes, I realize it makes the sets flow so much smoother for me. Mm -hmm. And for me, it was, it was a way to release the idea of like the audience needs to know what I'm talking about or how are they going to laugh? You know, <laughs> it's like, no, make them laugh, make them understand what you're talking about. Uh -huh. And it's like a leveling up kind of thing. And, and it is, there is a security blanket in asking questions like that. Yeah. Um, that, and I get it. I understand. And it, it took me a minute to, to really break that habit because it'd become a habit where I'd been do, I was doing it so much. Mm -hmm. And, but once I did that, I really started to step into the confidence about who I am. These are the, these are my jokes. I'm going to tell my jokes and I'm going to help them understand, even if it's difficult stuff that they might not know about, we're going to make them understand it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's, that's really good advice because I've been definitely guilty of that myself and, uh, not so much anymore, but that's, that's definitely excellent advice. Um, th this is kind of a, off note but uh i was i was inspired so i ordered your uh ryan singer's comedy notebook off of amazon today what oh this is the five-year anniversary of the release today is it really oh yeah. I, i'll get a special one then what's in what's in that well remember earlier when we were discussing like set lists and yeah. like how do you write a set list gosh i think it was 2013 was the first time i started doing this um, instead of writing a set list out, I would, I would still do a set list, but it would be abstract, an abstract set list. And so the notebook is, um, the replica that will be delivered to you is, you know, all of those types of set lists that I did over the years that I was doing over the years, 
um, in my notebook before shows. Mm-hmm. And whether it would have like an idea or a feeling or a, something I wanted to keep in mind during my performance that night, something I wanted to focus on, you know, like some of them are just about like, be in the moment, you know, like mm-hmm. don't get caught up, like be really in the moment of this performance tonight of the mm-hmm. show. That's your set list. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and I would still write down maybe a traditional set list or something on a piece of paper or in a other little tiny notebook or something, maybe just so I could be like, okay, I want to do these jokes in this order. And maybe I'll move this chunk to a different part, mm-hmm. try to work in some new stuff. But overall, this was the theme. And this was the thing I really wanted to focus on on that particular night. Mm-hmm. And so that was, um, so that's what that notebook is that you ordered. It's a replica of all of those drawings and, and things like that. That's great. I, I think that'll be a good learning tool. Yeah, it's just a fun little coffee table book, too, I think, you know, for comedy fans. Yeah. Um, and, you know, because most of them are like, you know, visual puns or word plays and uh-huh. things like that, you know. And then my close, and then I, so it's like a drawing or it's something. And then there's always a closer. I wrote it right out like something is the closer. And the closer is usually a joke. Yeah. You know, um, but, uh, so, yeah, it was a, it's a fun thing to do before shows uh-huh. um, to, you know, because I think it's uh, Roy Holiday, the, you know, the late, great baseball pitcher. It was an amazing Hall of Famer. Uh, he was an incredible guy. He died tragically in a plane crash. But he would before his uh, before pitching, he would do that thing where you have like a bunch of different numbers on a board like whether the little cardboard pieces or index cards and they would be all out of order and he would just, and he would have to, before each start, he would take all of those and he'd reorganize them in numerical order. Uh, And it's just like a way to get your brain freed up from maybe what you like, maybe like worrying about like, Oh, there's a drunk person out there. I just can't stop listening to them. Oh, they're, they're pissing me off already. And I'm not even on stage yet. Uh You know, it's just a way to kind of like get your brain into the, the creative mode. Yeah. You know, while you're also in work mode. Yeah. Um, and for me, it was great because some of them are just intricate drawings that just kind of releases that part of your brain to go to places that it might not have gone. That's that that's great. It's kind of like a almost a forced uh, meditation. And, and yeah, exactly. Yeah. It gets you get you out of your head a little bit. That's exactly what it is. Yeah. yeah. You nailed it. Okay, we are at the point of the show, the it's still relatively new, where uh, we each bring a joke to the table. It's called, Is This Anything? And uh, since you're the guest, I'm going to let you decide if you want to uh, do yours first or uh, do mine first. Um, I'll do mine first. Okay. Because um, I just really don't know if it's, if it, if there, if it is anything at all. <laughs> um. Now, this one is, now, you know what? I'm going to do the one that I just came up with last night because it's really, really fresh. Um, so we're at this, and this, like, this will have to be refined and boiled down into some kind of concise idea at some point. Like, <laughs> but this is the distilling process of these ideas uh-huh. um, that have, you know, become my act in the last handful of years. So I'm reading this book and we're at a, uh, we're at the launch point our civilization on earth is at a launch point of technology where we have 
reached an acceleration period. We're like in this in between being like these, you know, dumb apes and being these magical wizards. Mm-hmm. We're right in the middle right now. Uh, is what you know scientists would classify this period of human history mm-hmm. that we are lucky enough to be living in. But being a part of that, it makes sense to me when you like look around and you see all of maybe this is probably this is probably how the joke should start by saying this part of it being like when you walk around today and you're surrounded by all kinds of people who are just like, what the hell is happening? What is going on? There's this pervasive sense of what the hell is happening uh-huh. everywhere. Right. Uh-huh. And, um, and it's like, there's all these different reasons why that could be happening, but it t- makes total sense when you understand that we're in a critical part of human evolution uh, as a civilization where we're in the, like the launch point where everything gets accelerated super fast we're we're the bridge between the you know the the ape and the magical wizard who can time travel and so it makes sense that a lot of us are like but but but, but why doesn't zoom work you know like you know like <laughs> there's something there i think that that is like this mass confusion slash turns into anger turns into a frustration right as uh-huh. as a civilization that like cuz it's this growing pain we're all like we're physically we have the growing pain right now like of our consciousness and just everything wrapped into one thing right now and not to mention you know the the underlying doom and gloom of climate change Uh that the world is you know the world is uh as a sustainable way for humans to live is dying right in front of us and i think that subconsciously impacts everything when people are like that's my parking spot what they really should be saying is the ice caps are melting and we're not doing anything about it. You know what I mean? <laughs> like that's what really should be yelled in the parking lots of grocery stores on or uh, big box stores on black Friday. Uh-huh. But so that's like where this is the idea uh-huh. um, that just came to me last night because of something I read where they're talking about this launch point. Yeah. This, this launch pad period we're in right now. But so I, I think there's something there. It's yeah, there a question is. of really distilling it though. Yeah. And I agree that the opening it with how we are feeling as a human race and then getting into the, the book that's talking about it. I think, I think that's a good idea. And, you know, the only tag I could give is, you know, the, the world is moving on and we're just not ready for it. And, yeah. and maybe, put that in there you know it's because i've i've got a bit where i talk about the world moving on and how the older you get the more at peace you are with dying because the world has gotten away from you it's it's moved on and you don't really fit there anymore and and yet now younger people are people are feeling that younger and younger because it's going so fast and yeah i think I think you do definitely have something there. Yeah, I, I like that idea. The world is moving on. We're not ready for it. And, and like, I had no idea how into, like, uh, representation certain people were when it came to the people in commercials. Like, yeah. you know, hey, that's <laughs> it's like, that's like, a, it's like my mom will say something like, well, I didn't notice on these commercials. And I was like, oh, I didn't ever knew you were that invested in who was being represented in uh, the, 
the uh, the pieces of media that are selling you things you don't need. Like, since when do you care about representation in commercials? But like, uh, but yeah, it's this whole the world is moving on. Yeah, and you know, and we're all not ready for it. And I think specifically in our own ways, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. Well, um, yeah, I, I, I definitely think you have something there. Uh, so mine is, um, j- just to set it up, I started doing stand up when I was 52 and I'm 58 now, and it's been pretty much a hobby for me, but I decided when I started, I really wanted to be like the everyman type of comic. I wanted to, I wanted to keep it clean and, uh, never swear, always, always keep things pretty much PG and that's not me. So I'm, I'm, I'm a darker, more, uh, angry person. So I'm completely redoing everything because I figure if I'm doing it for me, as much as I'm doing it for the audience, I might as well do what I want to say. So I've, I've thrown out so much stuff and changed it up, but this is a joke that I did before that I've made a lot darker. So I, I want you to tell me, first of all, <laughs> do I have anything? And second off, is it too dark? So, and I recorded it because I didn't know, didn't know if I was going to have a voice. So here it goes. My day started out pretty rough. Most people would say my experience was great, but I'm not most people. I went to McDonald's to get a large diet Coke. And when I got to the pay window, the cashier told me that the nice lady in front of me paid for my order. It's great, right? For normal people, but I'm not normal. You see, I'm at odds with the universe. I feel it's constantly looking at me and saying, well, we've given him 58 years and he volunteered at one food drive. We really expected more. My demerits far outweigh my gold stars in the balance of my universal existence. So not being able to pay for my Diet Coke is just another demerit in my stupid mind. Of course, my first reaction is anger. I'm staring lasers at the lady in front of me. Good for you, Janet, for spending a dollar to make you feel like you're the universe's favorite lady while further proving I was a mistake in your Volvo with a coexist bumper sticker. Those coexist bumper stickers really aren't working, by the way. We're not coexisting very well at all. I think a recall or redesign is in order for those. Okay, back to Janet. I can see her virtue signaling on Facebook about how good it feels to pay it forward, but my anger turns into panic. What if this is my last demerit and the universe decides to eliminate me? I have to pay it backward right now. So I go through the line and order another Diet Coke. I mean, it's basically buy one, get one free at this point, right? Then I tell the nice cashier that I'd like to pay for the person behind me so that I can have the tiniest bit of peace of mind. $35. $35 is what it costs me to get out of that McDonald's parking lot and keep my sanity. I I want to know what the, I want to know what the, the rebranded coexist would be. (laughs) Um, I feel like you left me hanging there. Yeah. Um, I, I feel like I could, I could do a minute on that. Yeah, yeah, I feel like that's its own thing. Like, you know, you give me some examples of, you know, it, you know, it shouldn't be coexist. It should be, you know, whatever, you know. Whatever. Just calm the fuck down. You know, calm so, the fuck yeah. Down. Yeah, or or, you know, the I I like this idea too of um oh, this is you pay for my meal or you pay for my thing on the day I get the the smallest thing I could get. 
Uh-huh. Like this is the universe being like, we're looking out for you. Like literally we're doing, you know, that old saying of, um, it's the least you could do. Well, uh-huh. yeah, it literally was the least I could do. That was the least the universe could do <laughs> in that moment was buy you a fucking diet Coke. <laughs> it's buy one, get one free. I didn't even get two. So now I got to go back. Um, and then I do think that there's something here about this line thing. Cause I've never heard anyone talk about, um, you know, getting screwed doing that. Um, because I've done that before. Like it's, it happens at Starbucks, uh-huh. lot, I think. Yeah. Um, and you know, there have been times where I've got, there's been times where I've, I've done it both ways where someone has paid for my drink and I've been like, Oh, that's great. See you later. And I take off. I'm uh-huh. like, this was my day. I get it. Yeah. And not, and don't feel obligated to pay for the person because the person behind you has no idea uh-huh. that you didn't just pay for them. Right. Um, but, uh, and yeah, I like this idea too of Janet, you know, guess what, Janet, you buying me a diet Coke does not wipe away all of your demerits. What dark shit have you been getting into to where you think you're going to wipe the slate clean by buying me a diet Coke? 99 cents, any size, Janet. 99 cents any size of your sin janet what was the size of your sin that you're trying to you're trying to pay for here uh and then kind of like uh because it's really fun to like make fun of an imaginary stranger yeah right yeah Uh because we can we can make them we can make them the the worst person in the world right uh, right if we want to yeah and everybody in the audience can kind of be like oh yeah i can i can imagine this imaginary person right yeah yeah we all love to hate Mm -hmm. you know um i think it can go there i mean you could also i mean you could bring it you know the focus on yourself like you did but i think it really gets funny when you start going after janet yeah yeah that makes sense why are you why are you why are you doing this janet yeah yeah guess what you're in the mcdonald's drive-thru janet you're not a good person. How do I know that? <laughs> I'm in a McDonald's drive through and I'm not a good person. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Right? There's no such thing as a good person in a McDonald's drive through uh, So let's 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 wipe away that illusion right now. Yeah. Yeah. I I like that. The only thing I'm worried about, so the coexist thing just really came up today. So that that was something it just popped into my head. Okay, she's she's driving a Volvo. She's got a coexist bumper bumper sticker, and I just started thinking, well, that bumper sticker just didn't do its job, and and so I just wonder how far. And and you do a pretty good job of it. You'll 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 go off onto a subject and then come back, and you can bring it back pretty good. So I guess I could envelope that in in the middle there, and and still bring them back. Yeah. Yeah. Um, for sure. It's a nice little, there was, um, Oh God, what TP. Oh my God. TP Mulrooney. I don't know if you've ever heard of him. I have a comic out of Chicago. And when I was an open micer, I'll never forget this at Wiley's comedy club. Um, he was hanging out. I think me and uh, me and another, uh, young guy did, uh, guest spots during his weekend and towards the end of the weekend, he was like, listen, you guys are going to be the next, you guys are next in comedy, right? You're the next generation of comedy. 
um, figure out who you want to be. And hopefully that's yourself. Mm -hmm. And he also said, you have so many pockets to fill in these jokes and you're not filling any of these pockets. Mm -hmm. Like the coexist part right there. That's what TP, I mean, I don't want to speak for TP, but I think I can here after 20 years. That's a pocket that can be filled Mm -hmm. inside this bit, right? Mm -hmm. Now you're building, now you're, now it's not just a joke. Now you're, now this is becoming a bit. Mm. Um, and the more pockets that are filled, the meatier the bit gets mm. and the juicier the bit gets and like the better and the more like, Oh, if this one doesn't work, guess what? There's another one coming right after it. So don't worry about it. Right. Right. Um, that's definitely the coexist is definitely a pocket to be filled in that one. Mm-hmm. Um, nothing's like springing to my mind immediately on that. Um, like it was for the Janet part. Yeah. <laughs> but um the uh but that's definitely a pocket. Good, good. I'll keep I'll keep working that. And it, it, you know, it came from a much shorter joke that basically I was mad because I had a sticky uh handful of change I wanted to get rid of. So, you know, it just it it morphed into something a little little bit darker. And uh yeah. 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 <laughs> That's great. Hey, before before we finish, can you uh, tell me a little bit about the podcast? Oh, yeah. the uh, Me and Paranormal use the name of it. I've been doing it for coming up on nine years now. 662. I think I just uploaded the 662 uh, late last night this morning at the mm-hmm. time of this recording. And so, wow. I mean, that's a ton of, I guess, episodes. It's a paranormal podcast. I interview a lot of comedians over the years but anything outside the normal is what i consider to be paranormal mm-hmm. so there's a lot of ghost talk tarot cards psychics bigfoot a lot of esoteric stuff uh, mystery school stuff you know freemasonry rosicrucians alchemy ufos aliens um all kinds of stuff like that and you know i've become this you know i i, I mean i don't know i i mean i'm a full-on paranormal investigator now uh you know, I've been doing paranormal investigations for years now and researching all these topics for the for the podcast over the years. It's it's a real passion of mine um, because, of you know, I love the paranormal and I've had paranormal experiences and things like that that, you know, really cracked me open. But it's just a, it's such a fun world and it kind of goes into the, you know, believing. Right. It's mm-hmm. it's more fun to believe is the premise of the whole show. And um it's been a wild journey. That's for sure. Yeah. Um, and I've actually got a paranormal documentary series that I'm releasing. I put the first episode up. Um, it's called the bridge because I believe consciousness is the connective tissue between all things in the universe, including paranormal phenomena. So, um, and actually we filmed it at the same school. I started filming it at the same school. We did the comedy special. Yeah. So I spent two nights doing a paranormal investigation and then on the third night, we filmed the comedy special. Um, wow. So that series, the first episode is up now. And the second episode will be up uh, very soon. And I do believe that we used um, these paranormal techniques that most people use to try to contact UFOs. I wanted to use them inside of a haunted school to show that all this stuff's connected. Mm-hmm. And I don't, you know, it's not like it's a spoiler, but I'm pretty confident that 
the viewer will agree with me when I say we established contact with what I believe to be extraterrestrial intelligence. Oh, wow. During, among other things during this investigation. There's some really, really fun stuff that happens. Cool. I'm definitely going to check that out. Yeah, it's called The Bridge. Uh, RyanSingerComedy.com. Uh, on the homepage, I've got the special linked uh, embedded, and I also have the first episode embedded. So, mm. um, I actually watched yeah. a little bit of that this morning. So I'll finish that today. Oh, cool. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, there'll probably be about five or I'm guessing about five episodes in the first season. And it'll be an ongoing thing that I just keep making in the future as well. Mm, great. Yeah. Um, I, I just have to say, I'm, I'm really glad we got to talk. I, uh, you know, after I watched the special it's it's one of those things that you bookmark because I, I saw it come up and I like to watch everybody's special, no matter, no matter who it is. And I bookmarked it and I finally watched it and it was like, I really hope he wants to talk to me because I, well, this was fun, I, I think he's I good. <laughs> well, I appreciate you. Uh, and you know, those kind words are not lost on me. So thank you. I mean, it's, I truly believe the special will reach everybody it's supposed to. Mm -hmm. And, um, I mean, after all these years in comedy, I, I, I guess I, you know, part of me is like, oh man, I, I feel like my comedy should have reached more people by now. And, you know, I, 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 I don't do the comparison game. I don't like to do that. Um, that you're just, you're falling into a trap when mm. you do that. And, um, I think the most important, one of the most important just ideas to hold on to for me is we get to define what our success is and you know the minute we surrender control of that and we let the entertainment industry or we let other people even well-intentioned friends who are telling us you should have this or you should do blah 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 right as soon as we surrender what success means for us to other people outside of ourselves we set ourselves up for bitterness for failure for anger mm -hmm. and for sadness and i mean i've made it I mean, mm -hmm. I, I've totally made it. I, I make a career uh, telling jokes, and um, I have for years. Um, I, I mean, I don't have a you know a four hundred one k or a house or a savings account, <laughs> but guess what? I've been living the dream. I've made it. Um, uh, I wouldn't have it any other way. Yeah. And I think that's the most probably important thing I'd want anyone chasing a dream to keep in mind, at least from my perspective, mm. being 46 years old and, you know, being into it now is you get to define what it means to be successful for yourself. Mm. Don't let anybody else do that. So sit with yourself and really think about it and ask yourself, what do I really want? Mm. And why do I want this? Right. And if those answers are coming back in someone else's voice, kick them to the curb because those will not serve you. Mm. And then you can truly start to find some joy and what I believe to be sustainable excitement for the craft and the art that you've chosen to pursue. Mm. That's very, very wise words. Thank you for that. Well, yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's been a long time learning them mm. and you know, I've had a lot of great teachers along the way. Mm. So I'm grateful for that. That's for sure. Great. Thanks for being on the show. I appreciate it, Ryan. Well, Scott, 
Thank you for having me. I mean, if I did a podcast like this every day, I'd be on top of the world. <laughs> like, this has been great. This has been great. Oh, that's going to be a sound seeing, bite. <laughs> you know, I, I, uh, I look forward to seeing how this bit turns out. Yeah. Excellent. I'll, I'll probably send it to you after after I do it a couple times. Okay. Yeah. I'd love to hear it. Yeah. Love thanks hear it. a lot. Thanks again for having, yeah. Thanks.